so today we're going to be talking about um, pituitary and adrenal gland disorders. Um, oh, you guys might need those, huh? There we go. Alright, so pituitary and adrenal gland disorders. Um, there's not a whole lot of medications that we're going to talk about because typically uh, a lot of times when you have a hypersecretion problem of the pituitary gland, usually due to something like an adenoma or something like that, which is typically treated through some kind of surgical or radiation means. So a lot of times there's not a whole lot of medical management you can do. And then when you have a hypo problem, you replace what's missing. So a lot of times the treatments for this are relatively simple, and that's why this lecture is relatively short. Um, in medicine, we're going to go through a lot of things regarding these topics that are going to be super important. But in farm, it's, it's a little bit less so. And if you just understand physiology, like I told you guys before, all this stuff is going to be super easy for you because um, it's just going to make sense. So we're going to skip over this because we're going to talk about that more in medicine. Um, so we're going to talk about, uh, start talking about desmopressin and vasopressin and oxytocin. So where are these hormones um, naturally, which ADH, which is the synthetic version of desmopressin, and oxytocin, where are they secreted? Uh, the neural hypothesis. The neural hypothesis. Where are they stored? Alright, cool. So you guys got that question right. So that's going to be a question that's commonly asked on a lot of different exams in one way, shape, or form of another. Okay? So don't mess that part up. So what's the function of antidiuretic hormone? Retain fluid. To antidiuresis, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's right in the name. So antidiuretic hormone, antidiuresis. Um, it also has some effects in the GI tract and in the vasculature, um, causing vasoconstriction. Um, so it has some utility in that as well. And then what's the function of oxytocin? Uterine contractions and? Lactation. Lactation. Uterine contractions and lactation. So these medications are used specifically for conditions that are due to inadequate secretion of ADH, which is called what? What? You guys haven't done any endo yet, right? Well, SIADH is syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion, which means you're secreting too much, right? So the, the opposite of that is diabetes insipidus, okay? So diabetes insipidus is lack of, it's either lack of ADH or lack of response to ADH. So there's central, which is production by the um, hypothalamus or storage issue and secretion issues from the posterior pituitary. Or there's nephrogenic, which means, because this, this acts on the distal uh, tubules in the kidneys. So it's either a problem centrally with the production or a problem in the kidneys with response to it. So if you have production, but your kidneys are not responding to it, you're gonna have the same problem, same presentation, okay? Um, a lot of times they actually use the medication to diagnose the condition. So if you have somebody who's having um, signs and symptoms of uh, diabetes insipidus, and you give them this medication, and it fixes their problem, that will help you know what? 
that it's central, right? Because if it fixes the problem, it means that the problem was there wasn't enough of the hormone, and by you replacing it, you fix the problem. If you give the medication and nothing happens, then you know that the problem's probably in the kidneys because no matter how much they have, it, it doesn't do anything, all right? So in that aspect, it's pretty simple. So there's two different uh, variants, so there's a lot of different variants. I will tell you guys that the most commonly used and tested drug is desmopressin. Um, vasopressin is just like uh, desmopressin, but since it's naturally occurring, um, whereas desmopressin is synthetic, the vasopressin also has the GI uh, mechanism. So it's going to also work in the GI tract to cause uh, peristalsis and to cause vasoconstriction. So vasopressin specifically has indications additionally besides diabetes insipidus for things like GI bleeds or preventing GI bleeds postoperatively and things like that. Uh, but typically that's not tested on because we usually don't go into that level of detail in the pants and things like that when it comes to surgical interventions. And desmopressin, because it doesn't have that effect, is used more specifically in diabetes insipidus and it's preferred. And that's why that's the medication that's going to be tested. Um, so if you give somebody a bunch of desmopressin, a bunch of antidiuretic hormone, they're going to do what? They're going to retain fluids. So obviously, side effects of the medication are fluid retention. Okay, so, and obviously you wouldn't want to use it in patients who would not benefit from fluid retention, like patients who have hypertension, CHF, pulmonary edema, right? So if you just kind of understand that principle, then you know in your questions where you want to have caution when using this medication. So caution, also hyponatremia. Usually hyponatremia um, or electrolyte imbalances aren't necessarily caused by too little of any given um, you know, ion or whatever. It's usually caused by fluid problems. So if you have too little fluid, your concentration of sodium is going to be high. So you can have like hypernatremia. And if you have too much circulating fluid in, in the vasculature, your concentrations of sodium are going to be... So if you cause fluid retention, you're going to cause hyponatremia. Right? So patients who are already hyponatremic, that's an issue. Patients who have renal impairment and you're giving them medication that functions renally, that's going to be a caution or contraindication, um, as well as patients with CHF or hypertension. Um, or elderly patients who are just more sensitive to fluctuations in electrolyte balances as well and fluid status. Um, so vasopressin, it's going to be the same idea. The only thing I need you to know for vasopressin is that it also has the GI um, the GI effects, okay? So uh, I don't think you guys are gonna be tested on this. Um, you may or may not be tested on this on my exam, but I do think it's important for you to know it uh, just in case it does come up because sometimes they like to ask those differentiating questions. I don't, I don't think it will come up for you, honestly. Um, so oxytocin is gonna stimulate uterine contractions, smooth muscle contractions, and enhance lactation. So knowing that, you're gonna use it in people who are having trouble producing contractions. You're going to use it in things like abortion if you want to induce contractions earlier than you're supposed to. And you would use it in patients who are having um, issues with milk letdown as well. Those are really the indications for the medication. Um, it has a black box warning. This black box warning is not really tested, and I'm not going to test you on it. But it's not for use in elective induction of labor, um, which just means that if there's not a medical indication to induce labor and you just want to induce labor, you don't use it for that, which to me is just kind of like common sense. I don't know why that's a black box warning. Um, just like, I want to get this thing out of me. Let's go give me some oxytocin. Like, who does that? I don't know. Um, so 
that's a black box warning for the medication. I'm not going to test you on it. I don't think you need to know if you're pants either, because it's not really a, usually a medical issue of any kind. Yeah? Okay. Did you mean that it's when the person's supposed to deliver, but they don't? Yes. Okay. So someone who's not having adequate contractions or someone who's at the appropriate time of giving birth, you can use it to induce labor. And you can also use it if, if, and again, abortions in this case, a medical, so the black box warning is not referring to that, right? This is for someone who's not having an abortion and someone who does not medically need to give birth right now, but may want to at a certain time where it's appropriate. It's not used for elective, you know, like, hey, it's about time, let's just get this thing over with. It's not, it's not used for that. Would it be useful for someone who's bleeding out? Uh, to keep fluid inside the body, no. Vasopressin to cause vas uh, vasal spasms and reduce bleeding, yes. But to keep fluid in the body, no, not necessarily. Right? Um, but again, it's not really used for that. So the vasopressin specifically, not desmopressin, does have caused some contraction of the of the vasculature, so it can be helpful. And that's part of its indication is to help prevent and treat GI bleeds and things like that. But it's not. It's not a common indication, and it's not a commonly tested concept. So would an indication of using this be like if you go past your due date or something like that, would that be accepted? If, I mean, if you, if you are, so if you're past your due date and there's no medical problem with it, and then you wouldn't use it, because that would be considered elective. If it is in the determination of a physician or your OB that you're going to have some kind of complications by continuing to carry this birth on, and you should be induced now to prevent those, then you would use it. I hope that answers your question. It did, but that, that's not what happened with me. No. <laughs> they were just like, let's go. Yeah. yeah. Like, December 3rd was my due date, and I was I was feeling perfect. And they were like, well, we don't, there's had no complications. I They're like, this insurance <laughs> is not paying <laughs> us for this room. Yeah. Let's go. close to Christmas. Like, yeah. I'm going on vacation. I got a plane to catch at eight o'clock. my wife. Check in at six a.m. And if they don't do that, they'll just cut it out of you. So you know. Whatever. I got. I got a little worried. I was like, can't miss your vacations, right? Um, <laughs> I got a ping pong game to get to. <laughs> um, so guys, uh, more medications affecting the pituitary gland. Uh, these are two medications, so Somatrem, which is essentially growth hormone, and Octreotide, which is essentially somatostatin. Um, so growth hormone, you would provide it to patients who are suffering from growth hormone deficiency. So. The two conditions we typically learn about later on with growth hormone uh, issues is going to be patients who have too much growth hormone, and patients with too much growth hormone are going to do what? They're going to grow. They're going to grow. So they're going to either become giant, but what about if they're already like 16, 17, 18, and their growth plates are closed? Then they're going to grow outward, right? So instead of growing up, they're going to grow out. So they're going to get wide, and they're going to get acromegaly, right? So if they're younger, they can become giant. If they're um, older, they can grow out wide and get acromegaly, right? So growth hormone in patients who are not having too much or having too little growth hormone secretion um, would be a good treatment to help them during that time when they're, if they're not producing it themselves, okay? 
Um, and then if you have too little, then obviously you're going to what? You're going to not. You're going to not grow, right? <laughs> right? So that's essentially the indication is for patients who have hypopituitary disease. Um, and sometimes these things can happen from surgery. Like maybe a patient has some kind of um, uh, pituitary adenoma that's causing issues. You do a surgery, whether radiation or, or actual excision, and you can cause other adverse effects like hypoproduction of other pituitary hormones. Or if you remove the whole pituitary, you're obviously not going to produce these hormones. So um, it's used as a replacement for patients who are not producing growth hormone um, for all of these different reasons. So growth hormone has various different functions in the body. Uh, the two very, very important ones is going to be regulation of um, a lot of metabolic processes. So excess growth hormone can cause excess levels of uh, uh, blood glucose, so it can cause hyperglycemia, and it's also going to cause patients to have hypertension. So those are the adverse effects that you can expect to find if you give patients these medications. Um, whether or not it's at um, efficacy levels, it can still produce these side effects. Octreotide is the uh, synthetic version of um, somatostatin, and somatostatin essentially is kind of like the rest and digest, slow down everything in the GI tract um, hormone. Right? So essentially, that's what you're going to get when you provide this medication. It's used for a lot of different indications. It's going to reduce the levels of growth hormone. So if you have patients who are hyper-secreting um, growth hormone, this medication is going to help reduce the levels. Uh, ideally, you're not going to have a patient on this medication forever. So again, if you have a patient who has a pituitary adenoma that's causing hyper-secretion of growth hormone, the ultimate treatment would usually be surgery. But if you need to provide a medication to reduce levels of growth hormone because they're either having, you know, wild swings in blood glucose, blood pressure, um, or you just can't do the surgery for X reason, this is a medication that will be able or will be indicated to control those levels in the meantime while you await that. Um, because you are slowing down metabolism, you are slowing down. We talked about this medication also for what treatment? Or what? Cancer, cancerous tumors, specifically doing what? Carcinoid. We talked about it in the diarrhea lecture. We talked about it in diarrhea for patients who are having diarrhea due to, um, yeah. So that's another indication for the medication. It's going to slow down the GI tract. It's going to slow down. Um, it, and because of that, it can cause biliary sludge, it can cause obstruction of the biliary tracts, it can cause pancreatitis for the same reasons. So all these different side effects are really a side effect of what the medication does. So that's why it's not a medication you want to have patients on long term, um, but short term it's, it's typically used. So kids are, you know, they're going to be, is it midges the term? Midges is not the term. Short stature is a good one. Short stature. Um, yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, short stature. Um, I don't know. Anybody have another? Good? I think dwarfism. But even even dwarfism. Even dwarfism is. You'd rather not be there. Does anyone only want short stature so we can ask them how would they prefer to be addressed, right? They're fun size. So, short, short stature is just stating a fact, right? So it's not offensive. So, short stature when you're going up. Somebody said something over here? 
Medical term? Yeah, but you can't call somebody uh, whatever you just said. Yeah. <laughs> There's another term. That's what you're seeing before the Yeah. 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 So yeah, short just describe when 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 in doubt. Yeah. The same thing like uh, same like there used to be a lot of medical literature that would use the word retard for a lot of different things. Yeah. Don't call anybody or you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel, like I could tell when you said it you didn't feel right saying it. And that's a very good indication. It's not a good term to use. And then at that point, like same thing, like at that point you're like, well, fundamentally, what am I referring to when I'm saying this? In your case, you're talking about short stature, short stature is fine. In the case of somebody who you may or may not have called the retard at one point, you can say developmentally delayed, which now you're just saying a fact. Based on the normal developmental guidelines, you are delayed in that guideline. It's just a fact now, right? So if someone with short stature and genetic short stature, you will grow up to be short. If you give growth hormone, does it feel yeah, if you give growth hormone to someone who is suffering from short stature, it theoretically should help them grow. Yes. Yes. If, 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 if the problem is due to inadequate levels of growth hormone, growth hormone will fix the problem. If the problem is caused by some other genetic defect not related to growth hormone, because it could be related to response to growth hormone, then it doesn't matter how much growth hormone you give, they're going to remain that way. So it depends on the underlying cause. If it's an underlying cause that is related to growth hormone, replacing it will help. If it's related to something else, it will not help. If it's something genetic that doesn't have to do with growth hormone secretion, you're not fixing the problem. So the same when they're adults, for example, if it's a... Well, I mean, once you grow, if you give somebody growth hormone and they grow and you stop giving it, they're not going to shrink. <laughs> you do need growth hormone for other bodily functions. So yes, even as even as an adult, you would need you still need to give medication for those functions. All right. Good conversation, guys. All right. So we're gonna go, uh, transition from pituitary into adrenal disorders. Um, so if you guys ever want to not mess this up um, when it comes to adrenal disorders, um, we all know GFR is a renal measurement. So this is one of those mnemonics that makes sense, and I love it. Um, and everything's in order, so it's amazing. So GFR is great. Glomerulosa, fasciculata, and reticularis. It's the actual layers in order, all right, from top to bottom. Perfect, beautiful. And it gets even more beautiful, okay? Because salty, sweet, and sexy is the best way to remember. Yeah, so it tells you what they do, and it, and it makes sense, right? Because, right, when you are courting someone, and I'm going to try to keep this as professional as I can, um, usually it begins with a meal, and that meal usually doesn't start with dessert. Uh, it usually starts with something salty. So, nice steak, nice steak, right? Some french fries at McDonald's, whatever your style is, red lobster, the biscuits are on point, right? On point, right? So, so salty, um, but you know, everyone knows after that, you do have to order dessert. It's, it's fact. You need to order dessert. So sweet, 
And then once you have accomplished those two tasks, um, you may or may not um, get sexy. I mean, it just, I don't know, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. So GFR, GFR, salty, sweet, sexy. Now you're saying, well, what does salty, sweet, sexy have to do with anything? The glomerulosa is producing something related to salty hormone, so aldosterone which does what? It retains sodium, which means that it also retains fluid, and it excretes potassium. Cool. So salty. And sweet is related to what? Corticosteroids, which increase your levels of glucose. Fantastic. And then sexy, I mean, that's the androgen hormones, right? So that one's easy. All right? So, um... Yeah, that's, that's a good one. That's one of my favorite mnemonics of all time. It works perfect. That one and the cranial nerves. That one doesn't fail either. Um, but we're not getting into all of that. So, um, and then you have the medulla, which is obviously not the cortex. It's in the medulla, and that secretes the catecholamines, right? So, if you guys already know the functions of aldosterone, um, then you know that if you have too much aldosterone, you're going to retain too much sodium. You're going to retain too much fluids. So you're going to be fluid overloaded. So obviously that's not good for your blood pressure. Obviously that's not good for CHF. Obviously that's not good for people who already have high levels of sodium. And you're going to excrete too much potassium, which is obviously not good for people who are taking other medications who excrete potassium and people who already have low levels of potassium. Right? So that one's kind of easy. Um, so... The functions of, it kind of goes hand in hand. It, aldosterone does it and cortisol does it too. But they play a huge role in the maintenance of your blood pressure, of your blood glucose levels, and also uh, play a good, a big role in the inflammatory response, um, as well as your immunity. So decreasing the levels of cortisol is going to decrease your, um, or it, having too high levels of cortisol is going to decrease your immune response, decrease um, uh, the inflammatory response within the body, which is kind of why it's used in, in processes that are immunologic. It's used to suppress the immune system and processes that are inflammatory. It's used to reduce inflammation. But obviously, too much of a good thing is bad. So if you have too much, your immune system is going to be too compromised. Um, so obviously, if patients are at risk for severe infections or already have a severe infection, you should probably not give them glucocorticoids, right? Or if you have to give it to them, you should be monitoring and aware of the risk of development of these infections, right? Any questions about this so far? All right. Um, so we're going to talk specifically about glucocorticoids. So I think we already did a pretty good job. In reference specifically to the adrenal glands, because there's hundreds of indications for corticosteroid use, but in reference to the adrenal glands, it, patients have several things that can affect the adrenals. Um, we talked about secreting too much aldosterone, there's a medical disease for that, but we're not going to talk about that now. But hyposecretion of the adrenal glands is called Addison's disease. If it's, if it's primary, or um, it is, you can have a primary issue, which means what? It's affecting the organ itself, right? So it's affecting the adrenal gland itself. So what kind of things can you think of that would affect the adrenal glands themselves? A tumor? Yes, a tumor. Yeah. What else? Injury. Injury? What kind of injury? Kidney injury. 
Physical injury? Yeah. Atrophy due to? Sheehan syndrome is pituitary. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, if that happens, then, you know, hypoperfusion of... But that is not a primary issue because that's affecting the pituitary, which is affecting the adrenals, right? So that's the secondary cause of adrenal insufficiency, right? So primary, infection, um, ischemic, right, due to lack of blood supply, and the biggest one, autoimmune, which is the most common reason why we see this, is autoimmune disease, right? So Addison's disease is specifically referring to primary causes um, of, of, of this. So if it's related to a primary cause, all of these things we talked about, autoimmune, uh, hemorrhage, infection, all these things are going to actually attack the glands. And remember those three zones we talked about, right, GFR, all three of those are going to be affected because it's affecting the entire gland, the gland itself, right? So because of that, you're going to have some very specific things that happen versus secondary. Secondary is usually caused by what? Pituitary issues, right? So because it's caused by pituitary issues, um, usually what hormone is it that is being affected there? ACTH, right? Unicorticotropin hormone. So it's more going to affect the secretion of cortisol and it's not going to affect as much the secretion of things like aldosterone and it's not going to affect really the secretion of the um, of the androgen hormones, right? So when you're looking at patients, you have to think about that. If they're presenting with a primary issue, they're going to have issues with aldosterone secretion, which is going to present with what? If you have too little aldosterone, you're going to have... You have low blood pressure. You're going to have what? Huh? Yeah, you can be hypotensive, yeah, because there's less fluids. Hyperkalemia, because you're not excreting potassium. Right, so you look for patients who are presenting with hyperkalemia, hypotension, and that's kind of a, a clue in to the fact that this is more of a primary etiology. Whereas if it was a secondary, they may have you know um, issues with blood pressure and things like that because cortisol has that function, but cortisol doesn't necessarily affect the potassium. It doesn't necessarily, you know what I mean? So you look for those things, and it's not going to cause because what, what does it do to sodium? It retains sodium, right? So if you don't have it, you're going to have... If, if aldosterone retains sodium and you don't have aldosterone, you lose sodium. So you're going to lose sodium, you're going to lose fluids, and you're going to retain sodium. You have hyperkalemia and hyponatremia. So that's what you look for in these patients that's specific to that um, zona glomerulosa, which doesn't usually get affected in patients with secondary... And they like to ask questions about that. And we'll cover more of it in medicine. Um, not super important here, but we'll still talk about it. So indications for it include Addison's disease, um, cancer. We talked about immunosuppressive therapy. Lupus, again, immunosuppressive therapy. Rheumatoid arthritis for the inflammatory and immunosuppressive properties. And IBD. We talked about it for IBD. If you treat it first with... What's the first line treatment for? And if that doesn't work, then usually the next step is corticosteroids, right? So those are some, some indications out of the many. Um, so adverse effects are quite a few, um, but you can just think about what it does. So obviously hyperglycemia is going to be an issue. It plays a role in blood pressure maintenance. So if you have too much of it, your blood pressure is going to be too 
high, <laughs> right? It's going to be too high. Um, a, a big one that they like to ask questions about but people don't normally talk about is the neuro. Mood swings, hallucinations, and depression. Uh, cortical steroids don't usually cause these things. It's not a common side effect, uh, but it happens. And I have heard of it happening to people before. Huh? They cause nightmares. They cause a lot of neural symptoms. And for some reason, they like testing on these neural symptoms. Right? Um, so, although they're not common, they happen and they are tested. Uh, hyperglycemia, we talked about. And then Cushing syndrome. Have you guys learned about Cushing syndrome? Yeah? Too much cortisol, right? Usually caused by what? It's a tumor. Yeah, so if it's a tumor in the pituitary, it's called Cushing's what? Called Cushing disease. <coughs> you have a question? No, I don't. Okay. You look like you had a question, but you raise your hand. So, Cushing's disease is and Cushing syndrome are effectively the same thing. Just disease refers specifically to the pituitary gland. So, Cushing's disease is a Cushing syndrome, right? Because it's producing a Cushing-like syndrome. But no Cushing syndrome can be Cushing's disease because it's not affecting the pituitary. But they all produce the same effects. Okay, striate, central obesity, um, buffalo hump or dorsal cervical fat pad as they like to call it now to not use the word buffalo hump. Um, yeah, these stupid. I'm reading it and I'm like, dorsal cervical fat pad, that sounds like a buffalo hump. I know what you guys are trying to do, you guys see what you did there, pants? So Cushing's disease refers specifically to a pituitary. So if you have Cushing's disease, you're having a Cushing syndrome, right? But if you have Cushing syndrome, then they're telling you that it's it's not related to the pituitary, right? So if if you see Cushing's disease, it's a pituitary problem. If you see Cushing syndrome, it's not a pituitary problem. They're referring to a non-pituitary cause of it. Um, so if you give too much cortical steroids, one of the causes of Cushing syndrome, right? Because you can't cause Cushing's disease with steroids because it's not a pituitary tumor. So one of the causes of Cushing syndrome is exogenous cortical steroid use. So patients take cortical steroids for a long time, they can develop a Cushing-like syndrome. So they love to test on that. Um, they like, they don't like to test on it, but uh, we are covering GI, so peptic ulcers and GI bleeds. If you prescribe someone glucocorticoids together with some kind of NSAID, the risk of developing an ulcer or GI bleed, yeah, doubles. I didn't know that it specifically doubled, but I knew it went up a lot. You put that in your PowerPoint. I know, but like, things are in my PowerPoint, they're there, right? But doubles. I'm glad you guys read my PowerPoints more than I do, right? <laughs> um, so those are the really big ones. And then obviously immune suppression. So super careful in patients who, with risk of infections and things like that, very, 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 very careful, all right? Um, so tapering is something that they like to test on and I like to test on too. Um, I'm not going to test you on how to taper because how to taper this medication is um, it's done in a lot of different ways. But what I mean by tapering is because this medication is going to replace something your body is naturally producing, when you do it, when you give somebody this medication, what pituitary hormone is going to be decreased? ACTH, right? So you're giving somebody glucocorticoids. You're providing a negative feedback to the pituitary telling it, hey, we're good. Right. You don't need to be producing any more cortisol, so stop, that, stop it with the ACTH stuff. We are good. And then you stop the glucocorticoids, and the pituitary is just chilling like, hey, 
you told me to stop, I'm out here chilling, but now the cortisol levels drop because they're not getting the exogenous supply anymore. So by slowly tapering it off, you're giving the pituitary a chance to be like, all right, I see this is going down a little bit, let me step in and start secreting some ACTH, and then gradually over time as you taper it off, the patients are not going to have any side effects. And obviously if you remove the steroids, cortisol levels drop fast, the patient's going to present how? Hypotensive, right, because the main roles we talked about is um, blood pressure and glucose um, maintenance. So, yeah, hypoglycemic, hypotensive, right? Those are the big presentations, right? Hypothalamus, do you have a tertiary issue? Yes, anything hypothalamus cause. So if the pituitary is not being stimulated by the hypothalamus, that's a tertiary issue, yeah. So let's say the physician of the paper is often correctly. Um, is there a medication or something that can help trigger uh, the reduction of ACT? No, you just get more steroids. <laughs> yeah, more steroids. <laughs> yeah. So, you so if you don't taper correctly, you're like, here you go, here's the steroids. You try it again. You get to pump them up to whatever dose you had or more, and then you keep trying to see we're down again. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You'll put them on like IV steroids, then put them on oral steroids, and then taper them off correctly. Yeah. Um, so usually, this is more important when you're doing long-term uh, corticosteroid therapy, like if you're treating somebody for an asthma exacerbation for three days with prednisone, you don't need to taper them um, because that's not enough time to really suppress the pituitary gland and get it to stop secreting. But if you're putting somebody on treatment for five days, six days, seven days, two weeks, a month, they've been on therapy for three years, you definitely, the longer you, they're on it, the, the more you need to make sure to taper. Um, so, you know, typically in an urgent care setting, the only time this is really an issue is if I'm prescribing somebody prednisone for like a week because they're having like a really bad asthma exacerbation and I'm treating them. I'll start them on 60 for like two days and then I'll bring them down to 40 for two days and then bring them down to 20 for two days and then after that they can just stop, right? And then along the way, if they develop any symptoms, it's not gonna happen as gradually. So instead of presenting, like if you just cut it off all of a sudden, they're gonna have vascular collapse and they're gonna present like dead, right? If they're tapering off, they may present, oh, I'm a little dizzy, take their blood pressure, it's low, oh man, you know what, let's go back to the, you know, to the 40 for a few days, and then we'll then taper you off to 20, right? So different things that, that you can do. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to test you on specific tapering regimens, um, because there's not really a specific tapering regimen, but I will test you on the fact that you need to taper and why you need to taper, and how somebody might present who was not properly tapered. All right? So that's hydrocortisone. Um, or just glucocorticoids in general. And then you have fludrocortisone, okay? Fludrocortisone is another steroid, but this steroid, instead of having um, more of the effects on the systemic vasculature, instead of having more effects on glucose, it has more effects on kidneys, where it acts more as a mineralocorticoid than it does as a glucocorticoid, okay? So because it functions more as a mineralocorticoid, it's going to do what? It also maintains blood pressure, but what else does it do that, because the glucocorticoid maintains blood pressure too, right? It just maintains blood pressure through different means. But So what else would it do? Being a mineralocorticoid substitute. It's gonna probably decrease the potassium, right? And it's gonna increase sodium reabsorption. It's going to do all those things that a mineralocorticoid like aldosterone would do. So 
this is a really important concept and it's tested on super, super, super heavily. So I want you guys to like super ultra focus because this is probably going to get you pants questions right and definitely going to get you test questions right. So we talked about um, reduced adrenal function from two different causes, primary and secondary. We said primary was a problem with the actual gland, which means that how many layers are going to be affected usually? All of the layers will be affected usually. And we said that we can try to clue in on why this might be happening because the patient is going to have what? What are they going to have? Hypotension. Hypotension. They're going to have them both. So I don't want you to think about that as something that's going to differentiate. It is not. But hyperkalemia, hyponatremia. Cool. Another thing that they sometimes have too is they have like skin changes. Um, because a lot of times these patients with Addison's disease have autoimmune right. causes and sometimes they present with vitiligo-like symptoms as well. And we'll talk about why that happens in the medicine lectures. But So yes, so that's very, very important because we just talked about glucocorticoids, which is things like hydrocortisone. And then we talked about fludrocortisone, which functions more as a mineralocorticoid. So you need to be able to distinguish between primary and secondary. Because if somebody has primary issues, they're going to need you to replace the glucocorticoids and the mineralocorticoids. Mm -hmm. Whereas if somebody has secondary, they only need you to replace the glucocorticoids. Okay? So you need to be ready to get a vignette about a patient who comes in with um, hypotension, hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, and know that it's a primary issue. I need to be prepared to say, well, I know that they need to be treated not just with hydrocortisone, but also fludrocortisone. Um, and the fludrocortisone is more of a maintenance medication. Usually, like in an emergency situation, um, they just do the hydrocortisone. They'll do like IV. Um, but in the chronic setting for prevention, you need to do both for primary issues. And you know it's a primary issue because it presents the way we just talked about. Does anybody have questions about that? Awesome. We're going to talk about it again in medicine, so we're good. Um, so adverse effects are going to be very, 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 very similar to glucocorticoids, but they're going to have the added symptoms associated with fluid retention. So patients can have weight gain, swollen limbs, obviously because this is acting as a mineralocorticoid and it's going to increase sodium and fluid reabsorption to the body. All right? So drug interactions... You know that this medication, we already talked about it, functions as a mineralocorticoid, and it's going to stimulate the excretion of potassium. So any patient who has hypokalemia, or any patients who's taking a medication that lowers potassium levels, can possibly suffer hypokalemia, which we know can kill them. So it's a very important thing to know. Um, which medications are important to know, out of all the ones I listed there? Definitely loop diuretics and thiazide diuretics because giving somebody concomitantly uh, who's on diuretics a medication like fludrocortisone is a terrible idea, and you need to know that. Uh, and digitalis, although the medication is not used extensively, um, it can cause hypokalemia, and it can potentiate um, digitalis toxicity, right? So keep those two in mind, um, and that's it. I was trying really hard to look up the oral contraceptives with corticosteroids oh, no. to see exactly what the effects were and all these things, and I was having a lot of trouble. 
Um, so I'm going to leave it exactly as the book phrases it. Serious side effects can result. <laughs> ben, you will not be tested on that, I promise. Um, so this medication is not, um, it's, this is more for GYN, um, but it does have, it exerts its effects on the adrenal glands because it works through um, affecting the secretion of androgens from, from the adrenal glands. So it's typically used for breast cancer treatment um, in patients who've already been on tamoxifen. So I'm not really going to test you guys on anastrozole for anything other than um, it works in the adrenal glands. So the mechanism of action works in the adrenal glands um, and it's going to um, prevent the... Um, I'm not even sure if I should test you guys on anastrozole to be honest. It's, it's really, it, it, it works in the adrenal gland, so it's here. I'm not going to test you guys on it because it's not like a GI-related medication. It was in the chapter. It works on the adrenal glands. The adrenal glands are gastrointestinal organ, but it's not really used for gastrointestinal indications, so I'm not going to test you guys on an ask result. Um, so I won't do it. So hypofunction of the adrenal glands. We kind of already talked about this, but this is specifically, um, even though we already covered it, this is specifically telling you guys about Addison's disease. Um, so we talked about primary causes already, which is destruction of the cortex through autoimmune, infectious um, causes, but can also be ischemic causes, things like that. Um, and secondary causes are excess glucocorticoid use. So obviously if you give somebody too much glucocorticoids, you withdraw them, you can cause some uh, an adrenal crisis because the adrenal glands are no longer being stimulated at that point and the patients can, um, can present with those symptoms because you've artificially trick the pituitary into not producing enough hormone, and then once you withdraw them, they're going to present in an adrenal crisis. And then the other cause can be problems in the hypopituitary axis system, which we already talked about. It could be caused by tumors in the pituitary, infections in the pituitary that don't stimulate the adrenal glands to produce the hormones. So the treatment for this is going to include um, steroids, hydrocortisone, prednisone, or cortisone. Um, or mineralocorticoids, which we talked about used specifically in Addison's disease, which is primary destruction and hypofunction of the adrenal glands affecting all three layers, and we already talked about how that presents. Uh, these patients, obviously, if they have um, a cause like Addison's disease, where these layers have been destroyed and they're no longer producing the hormones, they're going to be on this treatment for life. Obviously, if it was due to too much steroid production, there's a chance that the pituitary gland will resume function eventually and they don't have to be on it lifelong, but most patients, uh, patients with primary, are going to be on lifelong treatment, right? So patients who are presenting with acute adrenal insufficiency, um, and we know it's acute because it happens quickly, uh, rapidly, and aggressively, right? So patients who present in like uh, state of shock, they're hypotensive, tachycardic. Um, these patients need to be treated IV. So you don't, uh, you know, I tell you guys, you don't need to focus on the, the route too often. Uh, this is one of the times that you do have to focus on the route because if I gave you this question and I tell you you're going to give them 60 milligrams of prednisone orally, uh, you're going to be wrong, okay, because you're going to want to start them if they're having an acute crisis on IV treatment. Okay, um, if their symptoms are very mild, you can treat them with oral, that's fine. 
that if they are presenting in a state of shock, you need to treat them with IV medications. And then, once they tolerate it, and once they're stable enough, you can transition them to PO, and then they can go home. Usually people who have acute adrenal sufficiency die pretty quickly. Um, but if you manage to treat them relatively quickly, then you may be all right. So for chronic adrenal insufficiency, in patients who are having primary adrenal insufficiency, you also want to add fludrocortisone. You do not need to know doses, but you do need to know that it's going to um, control potassium and replenish sodium. And that's, you need to know why you're giving it, who you're giving it to, and how these people present. You guys have any questions? All right, so we're gonna talk about Cushing syndrome. Um, there's not a whole lot to talk about with Cushing syndrome because usually Cushing syndrome is caused by either a pituitary tumor in the, in the case of what? In the case of Cushing's disease. Or it's caused by exogenous corticosteroid use, so you gave somebody too much corticosteroids and they get Cushing's. If you were to withdraw that patient from it, they would present with adrenal insufficiency because you withdrew the medication. So although it can cause a Cushing-like syndrome, withdrawing it can cause an adrenal crisis, right? I hope that makes sense. And then these patients can also have other causes of secretions of ACTH. So if the pituitary gland is secreting ACTH, that's called Cushing's disease. But if you have, let's say, a lung cancer that's producing ACTH, that's not Cushing's disease, that's Cushing's syndrome due to an ectopic source of ACTH production. We're gonna talk about that a lot in medicine. You blew somebody's mind. So these patients are gonna all present the same way because they're gonna have the same cortisol-like symptoms. So obesity, truncal obesity, um, stretch marks, the buffalo hump, hypertension, uh, hyperglycemia, all these different symptoms, all right? The treatment, as you can see, for non-pharmacologic is surgery, surgery, and surgery. And the pharmacologic treatment in patients who can't have surgery or who are waiting to have surgery um, is a medication called aminoglutamide, which I have never, ever been tested on. Um, but you may see on your test in reference to how you would manage somebody who has a Cushing-like syndrome um, or Cushing's disease and maybe can't have surgery or can't have surgery right now, um, what kind of medications you can use to help them. And how do that medication work, okay? And that's it.